here with you all in some way. You know, there is uh, no shortage of hostilities in the world that we live in. We see hostilities between nations. We see hostilities between uh, people and their governments and governments toward their people. We see hostility uh, in our neighborhoods and through next door, people attacking each other. Hostility is present between enemies. And we all have enemies. Enemies see who we are and what we're doing as, as threats to who they are and what they're doing. Now, at the heart of hostility is bitter hatred, but I think maybe even deeper than the bitter hatred is a contrast of loves. Our enemies have different loves and they see us as somehow being threats to what they love. Now, when enemies perceive what they believe to be a real threat, they act in a way to, to minimize that threat. That's what we do. We, we can speak lies about each other to, to uh, minimize the threat. Our enemies, they can ruin our reputations through slander and, and deception. Our enemies can physically hurt us. They can kill us even. Many times, the efforts of our enemies to hurt us, it, it seems overwhelming. We feel as if there's nothing that we can do about it. And the effects of these, these hostilities against us, the hands of our enemies, is strong. Sometimes they're short-lived because the, the harmful effects are, are, are minimal. Maybe it's going to be a few hours or a few days uh, before we can... Um, find some relief from those, from those feelings of hostility. But sometimes the effects of hostilities against us linger on for years and impact every aspect of our lives. I read this, this week of a, of a Twin Cities man who was accused of assault by a, a former partner. The man ended up spending weeks in jail, and his reputation as a, as a legal scholar and professor at, a, at the university uh, here in, in Minnesota and also of a university in Italy, uh, his reputation was being undermined globally on the internet for an extended period of time, and his life was literally collapsing around him. Now, the courts eventually determined that the, that, that the woman lied about her accusations, he won a $1.2 million defamation lawsuit, but that money will not resolve all of the problems that those hostilities caused. That pain is going to be with him forever. Deep and enduring hostility towards us leads us to, to PTSD and other emotional and mental and physical health challenges. And I'm sure that all of us can recall a time, maybe even now, where we were experiencing hostility from our enemies and, and could tell us in very explicit detail the effect of those hostilities upon us and the hurt they caused. These experiences cause within us very deep feelings, feelings of a desire for vengeance and retaliation. And these are legitimate Feelings. The, the words reflected in Psalm 137 are there because it's a recognition by God 
that our feelings are legitimate. When we are attacked and hurt, something has been done to us. Something has been stolen from us. We've lost our sense of dignity. We've lost our sense of security and peace. They've been stolen from us. Now, sometimes the hostilities that we experience, um, we deserve. I remember, I think I was maybe 10 years old, and uh, we were visiting my relatives, and my aunt had just um, married this guy. I think he was maybe in his late 20s or early 30s, and, and I was just being a punk 10-year-old kid, and I was kind of punching around on him, and he got tired of it. I can't remember if he had said some things to me to stop or if he had asked me kindly, but eventually he just punched me hard right in the chest. And it really hurt. And it really made me angry, and it also made me feel really embarrassed. Now, this guy was a, a jerk, and my aunt eventually divorced him. But you know what? I deserved, I deserved that. And I learned something. He did hurt me physically and emotionally. Uh, and I did want to do something back to him. But deep down, I knew that I deserved it. Another time, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I had undermined with my words the pastor of the church that I was attending. And one of the other pastors, who's a good friend of mine, came up to me at a service, pulled me aside into a private place. He grabbed the shirt of my collar, he shoved me against the wall, and with tears in his eyes, he laid into me verbally. And it really hurt. And I really deserved it. Now, he maybe could have been more gentle. That's perhaps a legitimate observation. But I knew that he loved me. I knew that he loved me. And I never considered him an enemy. Was I feeling hostilities from him? Absolutely. But sometimes we take the wounds of a friend and we interpret them as efforts of an enemy. Not all hurts, though, are from enemies. My uncle, he wasn't trying to help me mature. He was just retaliating. My pastor friend was trying to help me mature as well as protect the unity of the church, and I needed those wounds. We have to learn to interpret the cause and the reason for our wounds. Sometimes they're needed, sometimes they're not. Not everything that hurts us is bad, not everything that hurts us is from hostile intent. But sometimes the wounds we receive are simply the wounds of an enemy who is trying to destroy us. And we want them to be hurt too. We want them to feel the pain that we are feeling. We want to take from them what they've taken from us. We long for justice and the pain is great. So the Psalms that we selected for today reflect this process of dealing with the, the pain and the effects of hostilities from our enemies. And I've picked these three, 137, 138, and 139, because they are, they're intentionally assembled together to help us process these various feelings and the experiences that we have had at the hands of our enemies. 
Now, 137 is a reflection, thinking back to when they were exiled. Israel was exiled in, in, in Babylon, and so he's thinking back to this time after the destruction of Jerusalem, which was a horrific experience. So the Babylonians had laid siege to Jerusalem, cutting off its food supply. The inhabitants of Jerusalem eventually got to the point where they were literally eating each other. Eventually, the city was captured and destroyed. Its citizens were carried off. In recalling this, which is reflected in Psalm 137, their sadness was overwhelming. And they could not bear to sing of the glory of Jerusalem after experiencing its siege and its destruction at the hand of the Babylonians. And they couldn't bear to think of and sing about the glory of Jerusalem after suffering all of the the death and the pain that they suffered at that moment. And yet the Babylonians were asking them to sing the songs of Zion, which would be the songs that reflected God's promises to, to Israel and to the descendant of David that a king would sit on the throne of Israel forever and over all of the nations of the world, establishing peace for Israel. So I don't know if Babylon's requests for them to sing were out of a mocking or if they generally, genuinely liked those songs. Either way, Israel couldn't bear to sing these songs. But then it says that they, they couldn't neglect to sing them either, for it was so dear to their history and their identity and future. Now, memory of this whole experience brought back pain and a desire for vengeance against what the text says are the Edomites. Now, the Edomites were not the Babylonians. The Babylonians laid siege to, laid siege to Jerusalem, captured its people, and destroy the city. The Edomites were actually the relatives of Israel, descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And Jacob, as, you, as most of you know, was, was the name for Israel prior to God changing his name. So the Edomites were brothers of the Israelites. Now, all of the areas surrounding Israel were also taken captive by Babylon, but Edom did not did not grieve Israel's demise, but they spurred it on. When Babylon was laying siege to Jerusalem, they were were praising the Babylonians. The psalmist remembers Edom's urgings against them and pronounces blessing upon those who repay Edom's betrayal, even stating that his desire, the psalmist's desire, is that Edom's children would be smashed to pieces against the rocks. Those are strong words. And they don't exactly reflect the teaching of Jesus to love one's enemies. And oftentimes this passage is used to show uh, the hostility of God and to undermine him. But these are just statements of somebody who has experienced a lot of pain and wants to see those hostilities and those who perpetrated those those hostilities judged. But how do we interpret these strong statements and reconcile Jesus' teachings for us to love our enemies, even the Old Testament's teaching for them to love their enemies? Well, let's move on to Psalm 138 and see. 
Now, Psalm 138 begins with thanksgiving to God for his steadfast love and for his faithfulness. He says he, he recalls past prayers that, that he has prayed and that God has answered. And these, this, this God answering of his prayers has brought strength to his soul. It has encouraged him. Now, the psalm doesn't tell us what those past prayers were. Um, and, and you can see that the, the Psalm 137 uh, is actually not a prayer that God would bring destruction to the Edomites. It's not a prayer that God would be smashing the children of the enemies against the rocks. Psalm 137 is simply pronouncing blessing upon those who would come to do it. And so you have this, this desire that the psalmist has and, you, and you, at the beginning, you have a recognition that, that God is one who delivers and answers prayers. And so it seems like as you move through the psalm, there's a general acknowledgement of the faithfulness of God. But then it moves on, and eventually the, psalm gets, the psalmist gets to a place within his soul where he is, he is confident of God's ability and promises to deliver those who are lowly and those who are oppressed. He has a strong sense that, that God is going to preserve his life in the face of his enemies and that God's purposes for him will indeed be fulfilled regardless of what the enemies are doing to him. And so you see this, this slow and gentle movement towards a trusting in God that, in, that regardless of what the enemies are doing, the psalmist can rest assured that, that God is going to care for him and that God's purposes will be completed for him. And then he acknowledges that he acknowledges God's love and he calls on God not to forsake the work of his hands. So Psalm 138 brings us to a place of sober-minded realization of God's sovereignty over our lives and that regardless of the efforts of our enemies, God's purposes for us will prevail. God will be faithful to us. It says he will not forsake those he loves. He will not forsake the work of his hands. And then we move into Psalm 139, which is a favorite psalm for many people because of the great detail the psalmist explains about how much God thinks about and cares for us. It's a reflection on God's knowledge of those he loves. The vastness of this knowledge of God's love, he says, is unattainable. He cannot grasp the full dimensions of God's care and of his love, which is similar to what we, what we read in, in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says that you know, in praying that God would reveal to us um, the, the, the full dimensions of God's love and of God's power, uh, it's clear that that the, the scriptures see that, that we need the Holy Spirit, we need the work of God in our hearts to grasp how much love and care that God has for us. I think there are three things that the psalmist does here in Psalm 139, three aspects of God's care, three aspects of God's love. The first one is that the psalmist's ways are intimately known to God. The second one is that the psalmist recognizes that God is always in his presence or that he is always in the presence of God. And the third thing is that God was intricately involved 
in the creation of the psalmist. So in regard to the psalmist's ways, you have his thoughts, his speech, and his actions that are referred to. I think of it this way. All of us really want people to, to know us in a real intimate way. We want people to, to know what we think and why we think that. We want people to, to know what we do and why we do the things that we do. We want people to hear us. We want people to understand us. And I think more importantly, we want someone to possess all of this knowledge, some of which is going to necessarily be bad, some of which is going to be necessarily in, make us insecure. We want somebody with full knowledge of us, all of our good things, all of our bad things, all of our ugly things and beautiful things. We want somebody with all of this knowledge to still love us and to still affirm us. And that's what he's saying here about God. This is one of the reasons why social media is so popular. It's a, it's an, it's a way that we can express ourselves to the fullest without being interrupted, all right? And, and, and efforts to get affirmation. That's why we want all the little, the little likes and the loves and all of these responses. Now, unfortunately, we don't get all of the responses that we want from social media, and we oftentimes end up feeling embarrassed about what we've published in pursuit of love. We open up and we become vulnerable with people that we trust or people that we want to trust, probably a lot of people that we shouldn't trust, and we get responses of indifference. Maybe they don't respond at all. Sometimes the responses are shaming us. Those people grew in their knowledge of us and did not affirm. They did not care. They did not love. What the psalmist is saying is that God fulfills this longing that we have to be known and to be fully loved in that knowledge. And knowing this about God, and the psalmist says this, it's really quite extraordinary. What we're looking for when we reach out for people to know us and then to love us, what we're looking for, God provides. If we seek God for it, God strengthens our souls in this longing that we have. And this is supported in the next section. We are constantly in God's presence. We cannot go anywhere and not be in his presence. Whether the, the depths of the earth of the earth or of the seas, the heights of the heavens, or he says, in full darkness, being with you is as if we were in full light. God is there. And I think you have to read that in connection with the previous section that God is not only with us at all times, but in all times knows us. And if you connect this to the ideas reflected in 137, in our moments of pain, in our moments where, where we are feeling the hostility of our enemies, God is there. He knows when we are afraid. He knows when we are insecure. He is with us. He understands us. And he understands those fears and he understands that pain. When we don't know the way, the psalmist says, God is there and God will lead us and God will be with us. And in this third section, coming off of the earlier Psalms, at the end of 137, God, do not forsake the work of your hands, the psalmist here now goes into a description of the work of God, the work of his hands in creating him. He says that, that God 
had wonderful and intricate efforts in fashioning him and creating him. God was at work, he says, in our mother's wombs, knitting us together. We were known personally before we were born. Each unique part of who we are was thought of, was designed, and then brought about through God's hands. And the text says that these are wonderful works. And going beyond this, while also recognizing that we are formed from the ground, the psalmist seems to recognize that within God's works in our origins, through the first man and the first woman in the garden, every human being that has ever lived or ever will live, their origins were in the creation of that first man and that first woman. Every person's identity and calling was present at that moment of the creation of humanity. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that God created us for predetermined good works. This psalm reflects the same idea. God's purposes for us will not be thwarted. We are not herd animals. Each of us has a singular identity and a singular calling and a singular purpose. And elsewhere in the scriptures it says that it is, it is, it is the joy of man to discover what God has, has crafted into each one of us. Who are we to God? What is he calling us to do? That's part of the joy that we have in life, discovering that. And then he concludes these three sections with statements that acknowledge and praise God for his great care and his love and concern. And then this psalm ends in some ways similar to what we've seen in the previous two. He wants God to slay his enemies. Now, if we interpret this portion and the rest of the psalm considering these statements, we must, we must conclude that these thoughts of God's great thoughts, that these statements about God's great love for us are coming at a time where he is feeling vulnerable and insecure and afraid because of the efforts of his enemies to destroy him, to hurt him. His statements reflect a distinction that he is making between himself and those who are the unrighteous, who are really enemies of God. Whereas Psalm 137 reflects just this personal language of his own bitterness and hatred toward the Edomites, the psalmist here is recognizing that his enemies are not ultimately just his enemies, but are ultimately enemies of God. He is not blessing those who would smash the children of Edom to pieces. He is asking God to slay the wicked who are hurting him and who are also expressing hatred, indifference, and maliciousness towards God himself. And this is a different perspective than that of Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a, is a valid expression of real feelings brought upon by wicked enemies. But Psalm 137 is not the final word. If we read Psalm 37 and we see these harsh words against the enemies of that psalmist and use those to vindicate our own harsh feelings towards our enemies and we use them to justify our harsh treatment of people, we've, we've stopped reading uh, too soon. And we need to keep reading. Because this psalm ends with a request toward God to bring about in him a perspective consistent 
with the ways of God. Lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in a way that is enduring and is sustainable forever. The thoughts reflected in Psalm 137 are grievous, and they are anxious thoughts. 139 is asking God to to search him and know if there are any of those kinds of thoughts, because the psalmist knows that at many times, our thoughts are not necessarily always pure, and they're not necessarily always good. They may be real, they may be understandable, but we can't stay there. We can't stay at those kinds of thoughts. The psalmist and God recognizes this, and there's a recognition that that God must work in our hearts to help us sort out all of these feelings that we have, these feelings of anxiety, these feelings of bitterness, these feelings of hostility. And God must transform our hearts and thinking to ways that are more enduring and consistent with the kingdom of God, more consistent with Jesus' own teachings to love our enemies. So how do we do that? Well, if you notice, in, in, as we've mentioned, in Psalm 137, the psalmist refers to the Edomites as the daughter of Babylon. Again, we know that the Edomites were not the offspring of the Babylonians, but were the offspring of Isaac, Jacob's father. Again, they were Israel's brothers. So how can the psalmist refer to Israel's brothers as descendants of Babylon? Why would the psalmist refer to them in this way? Well, I I think that understanding this has a large part to play in helping us develop these, these everlasting ways, our minds that are in places consistent with Jesus' teaching. See, Babel has always been the quintessential city reflecting the ways of a people in opposition to God. The, the formation of Babel we see in early in the book of Genesis. It began as a city who sought to attain godlike status. They wanted to control the earth. They wanted to control everything in it. Not through the administrations of God's rule through them, which is actually what God told them and empowered them to do. That's what he, that was the work that he gave the first humans. But the people of the city of Babylon wanted to, to rule the earth and have dominion over the earth outside of God's rule. They didn't want a relationship with him But in in the use of technology and industry and government with with their own wills and determination, they were going to thwart God and his efforts. Rather, God thwarted them, mixing up their languages and dispersing the peoples across the world. But the spirit of Babylon has always persisted, and it's reflected in the efforts of humanity to build kingdoms, to build nations, apart from and against God himself. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, tells of Babylon's eventual destruction. And it's here where we see Babylon, the city, at its pinnacle. Through events that are really not so hard for us to imagine in our own time, and all of the situations that we're in now, the world eventually comes to a place where it literally worships money, pleasure, and power, and it has done so in the wake of the oppression of the people of God. It is a global force, and the nations of the world 
are drunk on it, the scriptures say. At some point, the Antichrist, which is a a leader opposed to Christ, he represents the supernatural forces and the human forces aligned against God. He brings an end to the nations of the world's global religion, this worship of, of money and of pleasure and of power. The Antichrist brings it to an end. He is jealous for the worship of the followers of the world. And his desire for this worship, and his desire for the affections of the world, he destroys his adversary, Babylon. Who mourns and wails his destruction? The text says that it's the the kings and the merchants of the world that mourn the destruction of of this global religion, of this city. In our day, we would say governments and multinational corporations The most to lose in the destruction of Babylon are the rich and the powerful. Again, the story is told in Revelations chapters 17 and 18. The psalmist of 137 ascribes blessing to the destruction of the global forces of greed, of a lust for power, that were ultimately behind the destruction of Jerusalem. But the story doesn't end with the destruction of Babylon. For on the heels of the destruction of Babylon is the rise of the kingdom of the Antichrist. The destruction of our temporal enemies won't bring about the reign of justice and the end of evil. We may have feelings of retaliation and hostility towards those who hurt us, but getting them back isn't going to solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem of evil people doing things, evil things to to good people. It's not going to solve the problems of good people being anxious about the hostility shown to them by their enemies. As Paul says in Ephesians, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The book of Revelation doesn't end with the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18. It reveals that it was God who was at work through the Antichrist to destroy Babylon. But eventually, as the next few chapters, excuse me, as the next few chapters describe, God destroys the Antichrist through Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the true Savior. And it's the full power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that gives him the strength to defeat the enemies of God once for all. Destroying and conquering the devil and his minions in the great and final act of God to answer the prayers of the saints, to answer the cries for justice, and to bring glory to his name and to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was eventually killed by his enemies. And even though Jesus could have retaliated, he knew that the power of God over his enemies would be made known and that his vindication would be later. God's purposes for Jesus were not hindered by Jesus' enemies. In fact, 
They were an essential part of God's purposes for Jesus. God turned the hostility of Jesus' enemies on its head and through their hostility brought their own destruction through his power demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In the end, the power of God demonstrated through the death of Jesus and his resurrection brought salvation for those who would seek it and judgment upon those who continue to reject God. Jesus waited for God's purposes to be revealed through his own suffering. And that is our calling as well. Through our suffering, the power of God is made known. We will be redeemed. We will not be forsaken. We will be vindicated. We will be glorified. And see, this is the everlasting way. That final request of the psalmist in 139, lead me in the everlasting way. It's a way of life, and it's a way of the mind where God saves us. He strengthens our souls from the bitter pain of our enemies' attacks and gives us the strength to endure the hardship in love while we wait for the coming of Jesus and the vengeance that he will indeed execute against his enemies. Throughout the New Testament, we see the apostles praying that we as saints would have love for each other and love for others, love for all, those in the church and those outside the church, even our enemies, so that when Christ returns, our hearts will be blameless. If we maintain hostility and from that heart of hostility and desire for vengeance, if we work out those feelings in retribution against our enemies, we will not be at a place where our hearts are blameless upon Jesus' return. In this way of, in this everlasting way, the way of peace and forgiveness, we can follow the instructions of Jesus to love our enemies, to not take offense, and to wait patiently for Jesus' return. Jesus has done it. We've been baptized into Jesus' death. We've been baptized into Jesus' resurrection. We've been baptized into Jesus' life. It is Jesus that lives in us. We can do it because Jesus has done it. We may feel great hostility to our enemies. We may feel like we want to smash them against the rocks. These are legitimate. God understands this. But we must seek God in his presence. We must know his great care for us. And we must be confident that his purposes for us will be fulfilled. And we will dwell in the everlasting way of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, I thank you for these psalms that, that help us identify, put words to, and know that you understand the feelings that we have for revenge and retribution. But we also thank you, Lord God, that, the, that, the, that the, those words and those psalms don't end there, but they do indeed lead us into an everlasting way that strengthens our souls, that gives us courage, that gives us peace and a sense of security. And we're thankful, Lord God, that Jesus has gone before us to secure that. We pray, God, that you would help us to dwell in your presence, knowing you as you know us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.